come now to our preaching passage for the evening, which is from the book of Titus, continuing our series in Titus. And tonight we are in chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. Titus 1, 5 through 9. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. This is God's word. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> what makes a good leader? When you think of a good leader, what do you think of? What kind of person is a leader worth following? Smart and successful, gifted and charismatic. There are probably many qualities that we would want in a strong leader, and there are probably many things that come to mind when we think of a leader worth following. Of course, good leadership in any type of organization can bring success, can bring clarity and order. No matter what type of industry or organization it is, good leadership is essential. And being that we're here at church this evening, we know that this is true for church as well. Of course, church is not exactly the same as a business. A healthy church is not driven by increased profits, but by faithful gospel ministry. Church isn't fueled by crushing the competition, but rather unity under Christ. And we're not looking to recruit new customers here. It's not the business we're in. But rather, the church is to proclaim the gospel and to welcome all people into the life that is found in Jesus Christ. So the church is not a business, but that doesn't mean that there is no organization. We have elders and deacons, boards, committees, all aimed at fulfilling the mission of proclaiming the gospel. And our text for this evening is focused on elders. Why are church's elders so important? What qualifies someone to this type of leadership? What kind of person should we look for as an elder? What kind of leader is the church supposed to follow? Well, in our text for this evening, we see that there was an assignment for Titus, and it's also a task for us today to find and establish faithful elders. And there are two sections of the text, and each section is driven by a question that it acknowledges. The first section is driven by the question, why do we need faithful elders? And the second section is driven by another one, what makes a faithful elder? And so we'll look at this text and explore more of what it teaches and why we need to as well find and establish faithful elders. So the first question in our text, and it speaks to why do we need faithful elders? And it comes in verse 5, because see that Paul had an important task for Titus to accomplish. 
He says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order. It seems as though Paul had been in Crete and had preached the gospel. He'd even started churches there. And there was, however, some unfinished business that he was asking Titus to wrap up. It was putting things into order. There was a need for order within the churches in Crete. And Paul knew the situation well. And we see in the verses that directly follow our text in verses 10 and following that in Crete there were many who were doing things that were very disordered. In verse 10, they were insubordinate and deceptive. Verse 11, they were upsetting whole families through their false teaching. Verse 12, there were lazy liars. Verse 13, they needed rebuking. And in verse 14, there were many who wound up following myths, even to the point of turning away from the truth of the gospel. And this is just a glimpse into the situation that there was in Crete, and it helps us, though, make sense of why Paul left Titus there, what he wanted Titus to do, to put things in order. There was disarray needed to be brought into order. And so the solution that Paul had to this problem of disarray and disorder, we see in verse 5, is to appoint elders. This seems to be very much in line with the pattern that Paul generally had for his ministry. First, he would preach the gospel. People would come to faith in Jesus Christ. Second, then he would instruct those converts in the basics of Christian discipleship. And then, third, he would set up elders in those new churches who would continue to do gospel ministry. And so also in Crete, same thing, where the gospel had been preached and where at least a certain level of Christian discipleship had been taught, there remained an important task for Titus to point elders in the churches so that things would be ordered and so that gospel ministry would flourish. And the importance of elders for the order and flourishing of the church is something that Paul and other New Testament authors often wrote about. There are several important things about elders that stand out when we look at these various texts that speak of them throughout the New Testament. The first thing that we see is throughout the New Testament, there are three different terms that are used to describe this office. Elder, seer, elder, overseer, and pastor. These three terms that describe one thing. There's this overarching office of elder that has two main functions of oversight and shepherding, overseer and pastor. So elders within the church have these important roles and functions, making sure that the leadership and shepherding of the church are well taken care of. 1 Peter 5 is a helpful text for this. In verses 1 and 2, Peter writes, So I exhort the elders among you, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. So we clearly see these three different parts that are used together to describe one person or one role. And so Peter exhorts the elders to shepherd the flock and to exercise oversight. Luke as well writes in a similar way um, in Acts chapter 20. He's writing about Paul's charge to the Ephesian elders in that chapter. And we learn that Paul, in verse 17 there, he called the elders of the church to come to him. And then in verse 28, he urged them to pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers 
to care for the church of God. So the elders are to pastor and oversee the church. This includes general oversight of the direction and function of the church, as well as feeding the flock, this shepherding care with pastoral care and teaching. It includes guarding sound doctrine. It includes confronting false teaching, preaching, teaching in Sunday school classes throughout the church, discipline and care, comforting the sick and downtrodden, making decisions for the church with godly wisdom. There's many things that are part of this role. But a second important thing the Bible teaches about elders is that the office of elder is only open to qualified men. Both here in Titus 1 as well as in 1 Timothy 3, which is a passage with very similar, um, a similar qualifications for elders, Paul says that an elder must be the husband of one wife. It's in both of these passages. And all throughout our text tonight in Titus 1, it's clear that Paul assumes that a candidate for eldership is a man. And also in 1 Timothy, in chapter 2, Paul restricts the exercise of authoritative teaching to men. And there are other passages as well, but we see that God, in his sovereignty, calls qualified men to the role of elder. This doesn't mean that in the church there's no place for the ministry of women to shepherd or even to teach. I'm sure every Christian here can think of many women in our lives who have helped mold us, shape us, disciple us. I, I can think of many. The role of elder, however, is not as much of a gifting as an office, a role, a position that God in his sovereignty calls qualified men to. So there's a need a need for faithful men to serve in the office of elder. Of course, different churches um, have different ways of faithfully living out this elder, pastor, overseer role. And at College Church, we have men who serve on our council of lay elders as well as paid pastors here on staff. And together, we seek to make sure that we are shepherding and leading the church well. Yet while different churches have different ways of playing this out, you can see why there's a need for faithful elders. Finding and establishing faithful elders is vital to the spiritual health and vitality of a church. Without faithful elders, a church will lack the order it needs. It'll lack the oversight it needs. There won't be the shepherding care that's required for people to flourish spiritually. And it's important for us to be reminded that our spiritual health is dependent on our elders and leadership. We need their care. We need the oversight of our elders, the teaching that faithful elders bring, and our lives will be disordered without it. So that's the first question. Why do we need faithful elders? Faithful elders bring the oversight and shepherding we need to bring proper order into our spiritual lives. Well, there's a second question in our text that it addresses, and it's what makes a faithful elder So if we are to find and establish faithful elders, and if we do indeed need faithful elders, then we want to make sure that the elders we are finding and establishing are faithful according to God's word. So what does a faithful elder look like? Verses 6 to 9 give us a, a helpful picture of what that looks like. And the first thing we see is that there's a certain kind of character that makes a faithful elder. And the term, there's a term that's used twice in these verses even to describe this kind of a man. And this term is above reproach. 
We see it in verse 6 and again in verse 7. And so the governing rule for qualification for a man to be an elder is that he is above reproach. Or as other translations put it, blameless. In other words, that there's no grounds for some sort of charge of, for, against this elder. It's a high calling. We also need to, to make sure we don't go too far here to one extreme or to the other. On, on one hand, nobody's perfect. And of course that's the case. <laughs> if the only ones who were qualified to be elders were men who were absolutely perfect, we'd have no elders. <laughs> But on the other hand, we also need to make sure we don't swing to the opposite side of things. So while an elder doesn't need to be the single most holy person in the entirety of human history, he does need to be above reproach. The qualifications for these verses that they outline, it's, they're real. It's a high calling. There should not be question marks about an elder's character Especially the types of character that are described in these verses. And in fact, it's the exact opposite. He should be an example of what it looks like when a mature believer is pursuing Christ. In other words, when someone looks at an elder, whether this person looking at the elder is part of the church or from outside the church, when someone looks at an elder, they should say, that's a mature Christian. Ultimately, That's the kind of character that qualifies a man to be an elder. That's a mature Christian. Above reproach. What exactly does that look like? And Thankfully, we have verses 6 to 8 that flesh out what this looks like, what it means to have this kind of Christian maturity. And the first thing is that an elder must be above reproach in his family life. Verse 6 speaks specifically about his marriage and his children. He must be the husband of one wife, a one-woman man. Simply put, a man must be faithful to his wife in order to be considered as an elder. Of course, this doesn't mean that every elder has to be married, that only married men can serve in this capacity. Even Paul himself wasn't married and spoke about the value of singleness, even especially for those who are in ministry. But if a man is married, a high degree of faithfulness is required. And if a man is not married, similarly high standard of purity is required. But an elder's children are also in view as part of his family life. His children must be, our text says, believing, or in other words, faithful. This is talking about children who are under their father's house and under his authority. These children must not have a high degree of deep-seated rebellion or a complete, utter lack of submission to their father's authority. There's a, in our similar passage in 1 Timothy 3 that also outlines these qualities an elder must have, Paul puts it this way. He says, he must manage his own household well. And he even gives the reason that if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? In other words, it's not the absence of issues or challenges in somebody's children that qualifies someone to be an elder. Every parent faces these challenges, even the most godly parents do. Rather, it's that when these challenges pop up, how are they dealt with? How is the discipline and correction being administered? 
Is it godly? And does it help the children know and love the Lord? That's what's required. And so Paul's point here is that anyone who's being considered as an elder must be above reproach in his family life. That when people from inside the church and even people from outside the church, when they look at his relationship with his wife and they see his family and the way he relates to his children, they should say, that's a mature Christian. But Paul doesn't just consider family life, does he? He's also very deeply concerned that an elder is above reproach also in his personal life. Verse 7, an elder must not be arrogant or puffed up and full of pride. An elder must not be quick-tempered or impatient or argumentative. Or he must not be a drunkard, that he practices moderation with alcohol. He must not be violent, either physically or verbally aggressive, He must not be greedy for gain. He must not deal with finances improperly or seek his own good above that of others. We might look at these things and think, well, of course that's the case. Of course that's the way things should be. You hardly even have to mention it. But unfortunately, as we've turned on the news over the past months and years, we've heard all too often of men in Christian leadership who have not even come close to living up the standard And maybe you're here this evening and you're thinking, see, that's the issue. The men in power misusing their leadership, that's the problem. And there certainly have been men who have abused their power and position, even in the church. That can be especially painful and harmful. The problem is not simply that there are men in power or that there are people in power. The problem is that they've said one thing and done another. And Paul, as he writes to Titus, has absolutely no room for that. In fact, he demands the opposite. He requires elders to be men who know the gospel, who preach the gospel, and who live the gospel. It's even right there in Titus 1, verse 1. Knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. That's what Paul's after. That's what we need to be after. I think that's also what we really want, isn't it? It's surely what we need. Leaders who practice what they preach, who live with consistency more and more. Lord, help me. Help us all to live that way. Sneller must not be those negative things. But we also have a list of positive traits as well in verse 8. To look to. And an elder must be hospitable, which is welcoming to those who are outsiders. Must also be a lover of good or somebody who delights in what is good and true. He must be self controlled or has a proper restraint on his own self. He must be upright or fair and just. He must be holy, who lives in purity. He must be disciplined, has godly restraint. All said, An elder is someone who's above reproach. That's what he must be. That's the kind of character that we should be looking for in our elders. Someone who reflects the fruit of the Spirit working inside him. Of course, no elder will be perfect, but when you look at an elder, you should be able to say, that's a mature Christian. 
Yes, of course. As you look at these lists, as you scan over verses 6, 7, and 8, even right now, it's not just a list for elders, is it? In fact, it's a list of qualities that every Christian ought to pursue. These are actions that flow from a knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. They're traits and characteristics that, yes, perhaps are modeled in the lives of elders so that we can see godliness lived in real, everyday life. But these are things that every Christian should be pursuing. And the more we grow in our knowledge of the truth of the gospel, the more our lives ought to show the fruit of the gospel. And having these lists is not meant to shame us or to discourage us. It's rather to encourage us, to give us something to look to, to give us an example to follow. And so let's pursue this kind of character, this kind of living as we pursue Christ. It's the kind of character that we should be looking for in our elders. But it's not simply character that we need to look for. There's one more piece that when we're looking for elders, we need to have, and that's competency. Character as well as competency. We see this in verse 9. The first part of it, this competency, is that an elder must hold firm. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. In short, he must believe and trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ as taught in the scriptures. This is the same message that Paul was entrusted to preach in chapter 1, verse 3. It's the same thing that's being talked about in the sound doctrine of chapter 2, verse 1. It's the gospel, the trustworthy word that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. That's what an elder must hold to and trust firmly. He must hold firm, but he also must be able to teach well. That's the second thing that Paul talks about. He says that an elder should be able to give instruction and sound doctrine. An elder should be able to teach the truths of the gospel. This doesn't mean that an elder needs to be on his way to becoming the next great American preacher or anything like that. Paul's far less concerned with eloquence and far more concerned with the content Perhaps not every elder will get up behind a pulpit in the sanctuary on a Sunday morning and deliver the sermon, but he still needs to be able to teach. Can he get down on his knees and explain the love of Jesus to a child? Can he meet with a group of middle school boys and study a passage of scripture with them? Can he step in and lead a lesson in a Sunday school class? Can he come alongside a grieving family and comfort them with the truth of the gospel. Can he teach? He must hold firm, teach well, and finally, rebuke falsehood. This seems like it was a particular problem in Crete at the time, and we see even in the following verses that we'll study in later weeks, and later on in the book even, that this was a particular problem in the area. But, of course, false teaching wasn't just a problem then, There are always distortions of the gospel that are floating around, and at times there comes a point when false teaching needs to be clearly rebuked. And this is the job of the elders. Does a prospective elder know sound doctrine well enough to rebuke what is false? That's part of the competency that's required. So what makes a faithful elder? Well, there's both character and competency that's needed. We need this type of elder. 
We need to find and establish faithful elders who are marked by this kind of character and competency, who say one thing and live it, and who are able to do the ministry they're called to. Two points of application for us, one practical, one aspirational. First, practical. As a church, and perhaps the most important way that we seek to, f- to find and establish faithful elders within our church body is by nominating and electing faithful men to the office of elder, to serve on our elder council. And if you are a member of college church, it's a privilege and, yes, actually a responsibility of your membership to nominate, among many other roles, but to nominate faithful men to be elders. And so first off, I want to encourage you to submit nominations for that. It's very important. But as you consider which names to submit, consider this type of man. Someone who's of godly character and who has the competency to lead in a godly way. It's practical. Second, aspirational. This is the type of person that we should all seek to become. As we look at these character traits, as we see the kind of person that we should look to to be an elder, we should all look to these things, no matter who we are. And if we are Christians, we ought to be shooting for this. We should want to become someone who's of godly character, who firmly trusts in the gospel, and who's able to proclaim that to others. So whether you're an elder or not, seek to become this kind of person. And as we close, let's remember that in his sovereignty, God has ordained that this is how a Christ-exalting church is to be run. In the here and now, we look back to the first coming of Christ and we rejoice and wonder at the love of God shown in the cross. Yet at the same time, we also look forward to the second coming of Christ when our faith will become sight and our hope will become realized. But in the here and now, as we live in the church Now, we live between the comings of Christ and we're called to find and establish faithful elders who can lead in these days in the church of Christ so that we may stay firmly fixed on the gospel of Christ. May God give us strength for the task. Let's pray together. Well, God, we do trust that your plan is best. And so we do acknowledge our need for faithful elders to be leading our churches. So we ask that you would continue to provide faithful men to serve as elders here at College Church, and you would even be shaping and molding us into people who are after the image of Christ. Please help us in that, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.